Microphone check. One, two, three. City, city, sibilance, sibilance. Levels check. Good. Sounds good. One, two, three. Rolling and. I guess what my goal has always been is to go into places which seem very alien and very distant to people in the West, you know, living relatively comfortable and politically stable lives, and just to connect them with the humanity of people who are living in dramatically different circumstances. Actually, the first thing is the awareness that people can see the story from an eye who was inside the city. It's not about what you've seen in the news or what you've seen from a journalist who came for a while and then he left. It's like really real life. Hello and welcome to The Documentary Life, a show that sets out to inspire and inform you on how to best live and lead your own documentary life. I am your host, Chris G. Parkhurst, and this is episode number 114, and it is brought to you by Barong Films, proud creators of Documentary Film, The Documentary Life Podcast, and the Independent Doc Filmmaker Essential Checklist, our free eight-part course designed to help you achieve financial stability, gain support, and effectively distribute your documentary film. In our last episode, I talked about my initial trip down to the capital city of Phnom Penh, going door to door, business to business, and approaching people and companies to come on as sponsors of our film Elvis of Cambodia, as well as our Cambodia screening tour set for the second quarter of 2020. And last week, I returned to the capital on follow-ups and new meetings. I'll be giving you an update on all of this at the end of today's segment. What I'd like to talk to you about today is what it means to be making your documentary film while living overseas. And let's call this segment, Five Tips for Doc Filmmaking Abroad with Your Family. And so these are tips for those of you who will be living abroad or spending a longer period of time away while you work on your film. However, I should say that all of these tips are applicable to anyone filming abroad, regardless if they have a family or not. And with that, let's just get right into it. One of the first things that you'll want to have in order before leaving home is your health insurance. Now, I'm not talking about travel insurance here, although that's important too. But these should be two separate entities, right? Two separate insurances. One covers your travel costs like flights and baggage, and maybe sometimes some kind of emergency evacuation insurance. This is typically your travel insurance. What I'm talking about is what most of us know as health insurance, you know, coverage for any medical specific instances. If you're in the US, you're either paying a monthly fee for coverage or you work for a company that's taking care of these costs. If you're living in the UK or many other countries in Europe, your health insurance is being covered by something like the NHS or some national health plan. Thing is, to the best of my experiences and research, almost none of those types of health insurance covers you for when you're overseas, and certainly not for extended periods of time. This is very important to know. Please don't make the mistake of assuming that in the event that you require medical assistance while you're away, that you could simply call up your U.S. health insurance or the NHS and have them okay a procedure and that they'd cover costs, or that you could bring home a receipt and get reimbursed. That's not happening. So in addition to whatever health insurance you may currently have at home, you will want to purchase health insurance from a company that covers you while working overseas. 
There are a number of companies that specialize in this sort of thing. We use one called IMG, which is a pretty big and well-known one. But I'll leave it to you to do the research on what plans are going to work best for you and or your family. But you really cannot leave without some kind of plan in place. You've got to protect your assets, Doc Lifer. Your assets, in this case, being your family. Or at the very least, if you'll be living and working abroad on your own, you'll want to cover yourself for emergency evacuation. It's a nominal fee, and it covers you generally up to about $50,000 US in the event that you need to be evacuated by helicopter or plane to a medical facility. And that facility may not even be in the country where you are. Which brings us to our second tip. Research hospitals and clinics. Know the best hospitals and clinics that you and your family can go to in the event that you should need one. And for this, you must do your research, Doc Lifer, be, again, before the actual need comes up. You do not want to be caught scrambling to find a hospital or clinic you know, for your three-year-old daughter when she's decided it might be fun to down a bit of mosquito repellent. Make a list of three hospitals and clinics that you can go to should the need arise. Make sure one of them is open 24 hours. Map out the routes that you'll be taking to get to these places. Go out on these routes and do test runs. Figure out how long it takes to get to these hospitals or clinics. Figure out the modes of transportation that you'll be taking to get to these places. Are there ambulance services in your town? If you're in a developing country, most likely there will not be. So you need to know how you're getting to and fro. Also, go and inspect the places yourself. Walk into these establishments and see what the facilities are like. Even a simple drive to a clinic, then walk into the waiting room. That can help tell you a lot. Does someone approach you right away or are you left on your own? What does the waiting room area look like? How many people are in that waiting room? Does it look like the people in the waiting room are being tended to? How many people are on staff? Maybe ask about pricing and or insurance acceptance. Get on the internet and do your research on what hospitals or clinics are being used by other expats. Find out what facilities are being approved by other people from other countries. Which brings me to number three. Connect with other expat groups. Why not find out from others who have gone before? Just as we learn from other doc filmmakers who have made films and made doc lives before us, why not engage and learn from other people who have been working and living outside of their own countries? Especially nowadays, this has been made so much easier with social media. Facebook groups is one of the first tools that I can think of. Unless you'll be living in a shack in the middle of the jungle, there will most likely be a Facebook group, often multiple groups, that deal specifically with expats living and working in the country you will be living and working in. I cannot stress enough what a valuable resource this will be for you. For one, it will give you a place to connect with someone who speaks English, may even in fact be from the same country as you. It gives you a sense that you're not alone in your venture. And we doc filmmakers, we all know how valuable this can be. To not feel alone. To know that there are others who have had experiences that directly speak to our own many questions. Twitter, Meetup, and most definitely Facebook groups, as I said, they're all great ways to get connected and stay connected to the type of people who can be a great resource for just about any of your questions. Taking a sip from my coconut here, and we will continue. Number four 
get acquainted with your embassy. Find out where your country's embassy is located and who some of the contact people are should you ever need to get a hold of them. Depending on the size of the embassy, there may in fact be someone directly responsible for programs that might be appropriate for your own film. Recently, we applied for a grant that would allow us to be able to take our finished film and screen it in eight provincial locations around Cambodia. The grant that we applied for, and by the way, as I write this, we should be finding out any minute whether or not we were awarded this particular grant. This grant dealt with cultural preservation and outreach into communities. And so what we're planning to do with a screening tour fits nicely into their grant requirements and really indeed the mission of the grant. So be on the lookout for this kind of thing at your own embassy. Now, that's for your film. But it's also good to be staying connected to your embassy because they're going to be your first point of contact when it comes to any types of situations in the host country. You know, medical outbreaks, political changes, any sort of natural disasters, etc., etc. Your embassy could be your lifeline to the outside world. So don't downplay the importance of this, especially if you're going to be in country for an extended period of time with your family. There's even value with finding someone at your embassy to meet with to let them know what you're doing in the country, about the film that you're making. They will most likely be interested in hearing about this endeavor from one of their own citizens, right? And they may even have some suggestions for people or groups for you to contact about, I don't know, say, funding for your film, or further research or subjects for your film. You never know, right? Remember, Embassies by nature are connected to many, many people in the host country. They not only can help you in case of an emergency, but also simply as a helpful resource. And finally, number five, keep connected to home and have documentation in order. Similar to what I've already mentioned, it's also important to stay connected with people back home. Your family and friends need to know where you are. Don't assume that because you're thousands of miles away that it's pointless to stay super connected with your family back home or that in the event of an emergency, there's nothing that someone could do because they're so far away. Remember, even though they may be thousands of miles away, that's also just a few flights away. Technically, one can get to just about anywhere in the world that flights can take them to within 36 hours time. And people back home, can be making calls that might be easier to make from where they are. Some other things that will be helpful here, make sure people have an address for you. Or if you're moving around, you're emailing them an itinerary of towns you'll be going to and maybe places you'll be staying at. Make sure that a few select people have copies of all important documentation. I'm talking about you know, your passport, visa stamps, health insurance documents, social security numbers, this sort of thing. Actually, it's probably a good idea to have copies of these documents for yourself as well. That way, if your passport gets lost or stolen, you at least have a copy to show your embassy. Oftentimes, when signing leases on apartments or when checking in at hotels to guest houses or when renting vehicles, for another example, uh, they'll ask for copies of your passport. And of course, copies are way more agreeable than actually handing over your original book. And staying connected can be as easy as Facebook, 
email, Skype calls, or even WhatsApp messages. I'm actually messaging with my family as much, if not maybe even a bit more, than when I'm actually back in the U.S. Okay, so those are five tips for doc filmmaking abroad with your family. I'd be interested in hearing from those of you out there who are currently making your doc away from home or have made docs abroad in the past about maybe some additional tips that you think that other doc filmmakers should probably consider. You can either leave a comment here in the show notes for this episode, which can be found at www.thedocumentarylife.com or by emailing me directly at chris at barongfilms.com. I'd love to hear some of your own thoughts, and I'd love to be able to share them with other doc lifers. Okay, so in terms of updates on my fundraising excursions down into Phnom Penh, I don't really have any groundbreaking news per se. However, I will say that my initial excursion did receive some positive response, resulting in some face-to-face meetings which happened this past week. I was able to get into a room with the marketing and promotions people who make the decisions on things like corporate sponsorships and discuss the film and our various corporate sponsorship packages with them. Now, it remains to be seen how these will pan out, but I'm feeling pretty good about it at this point. I also did get the opportunity to do something I've never done before. I was able to introduce our film to a very high-ranking national government official. I had the distinct honor to introduce our film to the Ministry of Culture and Fine Arts and to receive their official letter of support and recognition for our film. Now, it's with this letter that I'll now be able to go out and about in Cambodia showing potential donors and sponsors of the government's endorsement in hope that this will increase the likelihood of, say, a company's financial support for our film. This is a pretty big deal for us. In fact, if I remember to, I'll post some of the pretty cool pictures from that event. So that's the latest from our adventures overseas here in Cambodia. Nothing big yet, but certainly more positive steps forward as we seek to secure the final bit of funding that will help us get our film to completion and then to our screening tour here in Cambodia, then screenings around the world. And speaking of making documentary films overseas, next up on TDL, we are going to speak with one doc filmmaker who has made his living shooting docs in the conflict zones of the world, and another doc filmmaker who just so happens to also be the main subject of their film, which just so happens to have been entirely shot in Aleppo, Syria, and also happens to be one of the most talked about documentary films of the year. The film is called For Sama, and we'll be speaking with filmmakers Edward Watts and Wad Al-Khatib next up here on The Documentary Life. If you're anything like me, when it comes to doc film preparations, checklists are an essential part of that preparation. Whether it's putting together a gear list, storyline notes for an edit, or gathering materials for a grant application, checklists are very helpful in ensuring that we're prepared for whatever may lie ahead in our doc journeys. Which is why Steph and I have put together a very special offering for you, a free eight-chapter course we're calling the Independent Doc Filmmaker's Essential Checklist. We believe that given the right strategy and insight, every doc filmmaker can achieve their goals and intentions with their films, that there is money out there for every project, and that every film can be met by an active, eagerly anticipating audience. And that includes yours. This course will take you closer to that outcome. 
To enroll in the Independent Doc Filmmakers Essential Checklist course, just head on over to thedocumentarylife.com slash courses. It's free, and just as we do here on the show, this eight-chapter checklist course will inspire and inform you on your documentary film journey. Edward Watts is an Emmy Award-winning BAFTA-nominated filmmaker who has directed over 20 narrative and documentary films that tell stories of courage, heroism, and humor from across the world, covering everything from war crimes in the Congo to the colorful lives of residents in the favelas of Rio de Janeiro. He has just completed his first feature documentary about the life of Wad al-Khatib, a female Syrian filmmaker who recorded her life over five years in rebel-held Aleppo. That film is for Sama a film that won the Grand Jury Prize for Best Documentary at South by Southwest, as well as Best Documentary at this year's Cannes. We also had the true honor of being joined today by Wad Al-Khatib herself, director and subject of Forsama, who spent five years in Aleppo being a mother and filming the siege and the hospital that her husband ran. It is a true honor to have the both of you on the program. Welcome to the Documentary Life, Edward, as well as Wad. Thank you very much, Chris. Thank you, Chris. Now, it's important to note I've only just seen Forsama earlier today. So while I would love to focus all of my attention and energy on that film and really the conflict in Syria as a whole, I also want to do my best to hold a conversation about documentary filmmaking with you. Edward, we'll start with you. Can you give us a brief in- introduction of yourself and the type of film work that you've been doing since, say, roughly 2006? Yeah, so as you say, Chris, I've been I've made uh, over 20 documentaries now, and almost all of them have been uh, international films looking at issues yeah. of war, conflict, humanitarian disaster uh, from around the world, and really trying to find subjects that... Um, I guess what what my goal has always been is to go into places which seem very alien and very distant to people in the West, you know, living relatively comfortable uh, and politically stable lives. And just to connect them with the humanity of people who are living in dramatically different circumstances and just to just to highlight how really, you know, we are one species with the same dreams, the same goals, the same values. Often it's just that we live in very different circumstances and and to try and build that human connection and actually inspire people back here to um, to care more about what's happening to others around the world. And Wad, you were an economics student, but you happened to have a camera, eh? Were you doing filming prior to the revolution in Syria? Was filmmaking something that you had been interested in prior to this? Uh, I was, before I was um, interested with the journalism, uh, yeah. with no specific things, but in this, as the situation in Syria was not, not that good. So my parents and I, when we discussed about what should I do in the future, mm. uh, they were like, mention a lot about like Syria is not that free country and if you want to do a journalism you will not do the journalism that you are a dream of but you will do something uh, under the authority control mm. uh, so that's why I moved to do uh, economics uh, marketing uh. and uh, when the revolution started in 2011 I just find find my way directly to the uh, media. Mm. So I was uh, documenting and uh, filming the protest in Aleppo University, where where I was uh, protesting right. with my friends. Right. 
and colleagues. And gradually with the time I was uh, learning how to use the camera, how edit, and how to do like some media stuff at the news first, uh, and some short movies, uh, but something was just locally with uh, some friends, which we, we all, all of us uh, didn't have that experience uh, of um, filming or editing or any of this. Mm-hmm. And of course, at the outset of For Sama, the film that we're referring to, at the outset of this, we see the process of you filming at the university, right? So I'm curious, at the time that you were filming, uh, both, at, both at the beginning of the revolution and then afterwards, I, I wonder, what were your hopes for that footage? What was your hopes for the footage? And the filming itself, the process, what was this doing for you? Because it felt like it wasn't just about making the film and shooting footage for you, was it? No, it wasn't at all, as you as you said. Uh, you know, the feeling that just we are alive and we're doing something. something. And at that time, the, uh, the uh, government were denied everything was happening. So we had that uh, duty and responsibility that anyone can do anything to uh, give a proof or evidence about what was happening. Uh, so lo- just we should do it. And that's why I just picked up my phone at the beginning and started uh, filming uh, the protest at Aleppo University. And as many, many others uh, activists who find their way through like some, some of us in the activist way or in the media way or in the medical stuff. So I've just felt that this is something I love and I can do. I just I did it. Now I have filmed myself in in post conflict areas in developing countries over in Southeast Asia, and oftentimes there's a very fine balance between kind of honoring the emotion of what's happening in front of the camera, and maybe experiencing some of that emotion myself, right? But then also removing myself from the emotion that, so that so that I can stay connected to filming the scene. Now, Wad, this had to be infinitely more difficult for you, someone who is directly involved in the conflict that's being filmed. So I I ask you, as a doc filmmaker, how did you stay connected to what you were filming and also to not get too overburdened by your own emotions? Uh, Actually, I wasn't controlling anything. I was trying just to be free as much as I can. Mm -hmm. And this is kind of the footage where uh, I think Ed uh, agree with me with this. This is what makes the story very, very different. Mm. And uh, the other uh, uh, moments when I felt that, okay, I can now control myself, maybe because sometimes I was shocked yeah. of what I've seen in front of my eyes. And maybe because I've just seen that this is a big responsibility and I, I should document it as a, a filmmaker, not as a, a person who's inside. Mm. So it was really like complicated. I, I couldn't uh, actually control that to say, now I want to be a person from this place and another time I want to be a filmmaker. I was just like free as much <laughs> as I, I want. Right, right. And Edward, I'd, I'd love to hear you kind of weigh in on that yourself since you yeah. have over 20 films and you've worked in conflict and post-conflict areas as well. So what is that like for you as a shooter? Well, it's very interesting, you know, because I guess I'm more coming from your school, Chris, where, you know, you feel that you need to retain some kind of distance. But but then I also think that charging your footage with the emotion of whatever you're uh, dealing with, whoever you're encountering, actually, I don't know, I have a sort of kooky belief, I guess, that somehow that emotion <laughs> often transfers to the footage, yeah, you know, absolutely, and, absolutely. and it adds to the power of it. And just as Wad's saying, I mean, I remember... Sh- 
I don't want to tell her story for her, but yeah. that she she often told me there was one someone who said to her in the early days, right, Wad, when they were like, look, you shouldn't be engaging so much yeah. with the subjects yeah. that were filmed. Yeah. Maybe she can pick it up. Yeah. From there. <laughs> yeah, please. Yeah, like uh, some uh, someone who I know who was like guiding me in uh, in uh, a period before, uh, like she told me like. Uh, like she was angry with me why I was very engaged with the character when I was asking like him questions and give him like part of my emotional uh, as I'm trying to discuss with him the situation and try to help him to be more stronger. Yeah. And she was like telling me like, you are a filmmaker, you shouldn't do this. And at time at that moment, especially, I felt that if that's like what filmmaker should be, I really don't want to be a filmmaker mm-hmm. because I felt just I had this responsibility for my friend, for this person who's instead of me and in front of me. And I need to speak with him as a human being. I don't want to be the filmmaker that asking him question about things, but, but I just want to, to give him this conversation, to give him my, my heart and my feeling about what he's speaking about. Well, so this is actually what, what I try to do through the whole years. Okay. Okay. Well, I wonder, I wonder, Wad, is there any, do you differentiate, do you see any difference between sort of journalism, like a journalistic approach or maybe journalistic integrity and the filmmaking that you're speaking of, or really are the lines blurred there for you? Uh, actually, I, I worked uh, a little bit in, at the news and yeah. I felt just this kind of uh, journalism, which mm. you, yeah, you need to be uh, far away from what you are trying to do and give a space between you and things that you are trying to say. Yeah. But uh, the kind of the film that we did for summer was, I was character and I was feeling and living this life and I was engaging to the end of that. So that's why make it like more engaging and more, I don't know, like the, the whole type of what I've tried to do through the five years was what about being part of this community and being part of this uh, like group of people, the hospital itself, uh, uh, the people who have this experience in Aleppo. As I was like living with them and I like was pregnant, I brought a child in this place. So I felt just I'm not a documentary making more than I am documenting this life around and and Chris I would just jump in as well I think it's really interesting about journalism you know there's an idea that somehow you need to preserve kind of a, a distance you know that objectivity objectivity right about. yeah yeah but but you know like I think that one of the things that we've talked about a lot Wad and I um, and my colleagues as well in documentary making is you know like if it's about humanity you know and crimes being committed against humanity mm. like in a sense, you know, I feel like objectivity doesn't apply in quite the same way because we can all agree that we're on the side of our fellow mankind, you know, against horrendous atrocities That's that right. are being committed against them, you right. know? And I think sometimes it's a mistake and actually it's something that regimes like the Assad regime, you know, and, and sort of uh, more authoritarian regimes use, you know, they say, oh, well, this objectivity means that, oh, well, on one hand, they may be, you know, attacking civilian populations. Of course, but on they the other, rely on this, absolutely. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's a really interesting question for us all as documentary makers, when the world is, you know, in the turbulence that it is at the moment, to, to just think about that objectivity and just think about actually, you know, sometimes you need to, like, passionately take a side if you're taking a side, you know, 
for, for your fellow human beings. And even if you are, if you decide as a filmmaker or as a documentary maker, like that you want to take um, a space or a side, but this aside shouldn't be the same between these two, uh, like unequal uh, sides. So, like for example, in my situation, I can't in every thing I'm trying to document to have the same side as from the regime and from the people who were like as a victims. So. This is just one point which I felt in this uh, world these days. People are care more about being honest and being uh, humanity mm. more than uh, filmmaking as filmmaking as a pure uh, videos out of uh, the emotions and out of the uh, moral that people are trying to to keep these days. Hello, Madinti. So, Edward, how did you first enter into the equation on this film? How, how did you guys connect, I guess, is, is a really important part of the story for the film. <laughs> well, we always wish that we had a much more interesting story for how that happened <laughs> than, uh, than the reality. You know, it's just um, everything started with Wad, really. You yeah. know, she was doing her amazing work. And I was aware of her work, as many people were, following the siege of Aleppo. And it was only after she left that um, that actually her colleagues and, and our colleagues at Channel 4 News yeah. uh, said to her, do you have any more footage that we haven't seen on the news? Where? Yeah, I, I, I brought them 12 hard drives. Yeah. One of them, two tera and others one tera. So it was like a huge amount of footage. <laughs> uh, as Ed was shocked too, like they were very like shocked. Oh my God, like, how do you did all this? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It's it's like a miracle, it's, right? <laughs> it is. And the fact that she managed to get it out as well safely. And it really was one of the most extraordinary archive collections, you know, of footage spanning everything from the intimate and the personal and the funny yeah. to the most horrendous, you know, scenes of conflict and human suffering that I'd ever seen. So I was really just brought in to support her, basically, to right. help her take this incredible archive of her and take her story and and turn it into you know a a coherent um and manageable feature-length film right right and wad I, I have to ask you in terms of all the footage and the hard drives I, i'm curious uh were you ever concerned uh, in the course of filming were you ever concerned one of losing the footage and two did you ever find a way to get any footage out of syria prior to leaving the country yourself Actually, uh, until we were besieged, I had no idea really that we will be besieged. Yeah. So it was like kind of, I didn't expect, expect that. And then when we were besieged, I was all the time trying to protect them and save them in a place where really they, no harm will, will happen to this. And then when we left, uh, I really risked my life to, to take them out. And for me was like, actually they were more than... Uh, for me, they were like to be to, to keep this uh, 
hard drive safe is more than myself. That's right. So, yeah, and that's why I've I've brought them and anything could happen when we were getting out. Right. Uh, right. I put them in, in my like in my body in in uh, in a in a bag bag. I uh, I wear it the opposite way, and I wore I wear a jacket uh, over that, and then I had Tama, my daughter. Uh, I carried her on that uh, uh, hard drive. In other words, you carried your babies with you. Holy smokes! Yeah, yeah. So I was really like, if if they arrested me or if they've checked me yeah. very well, I will be really like dead. And I don't know. I just like felt that you know as much as important for me yeah. to need to be like safe but this hard drives are really, really important yeah my god i'm very curious as a fellow filmmaker what was it like for you wad to bring someone else on board this film that you had spent so much time doing yourself that so many people sacrificed their lives in order to make what was that like bringing someone else into the film uh, when i left i was really very desperate and tired and i don't know exactly you know how 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 or what and how I can do something. So Ed was for me at the beginning, like the one who will rescue me and help me to stand and do that. Yep, yep. Uh, we spent the first time just like knowing each other and uh, like trying to watch everything so he can be like in the way that he, he, he knew my life and he knew all the details. And with the time we became really like best friends. And now <laughs> oh, we're working man. with this for two years and it's really... I'm very honored and happy that we've, we've just like, I, he said like there's no uh, exciting story about that, but I felt at the end that it's really the destiny. And how about you, Edward? Yeah, what was that like for you? Uh, well, I mean, you know, it was really just such a, it's hard to put it into words. It was just yeah. such a privilege and a joy That's to right. work with uh, a woman like Wad, actually. Not that I want to say too many nice things about her, but she really is. <laughs> A very special human being, very courageous. As she says, she tells me, but it's true, she always inspires me um, because she really, you know, what she did in her life and what she achieved in her footage uh, was unlike anything I've ever seen. I mean, I hope, I don't know how many of your listeners will have seen the film, but you know, the, when, the, when we first sat together and we were going through the footage, I really thought there were scenes in this that Wad had captured that were like the most extraordinary things I'd ever seen on film, yeah. to be honest. And that may sound very hyperbolic, but, you know, I've watched a lot of films and I really, and you've made I really mean films. it. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And you've seen it, Chris, and you know what, you know, some of those scenes that I'm talking about. Yeah. And, uh, and so it was, it was a great privilege really for me to have the opportunity to work with her and, um, and yeah, and learn from her, you know, we really learned a lot together. I think this film is such a great example of actually the, the future, which is that people, I always used to go into faraway countries to make the films, yeah. but now I think people are empowered to tell their own stories, That's you know, right. and actually filmmakers like us coming from the West can, can support them in that effort, can mm -hmm. help shape the stories, can help talk to a Western audience, which is very much what this film is doing. So I feel like I did my part of the equation in that. Um, I love it. But yeah, but yeah, it was a, it was a joy. Wad always says, you know, most people they start a project together and they end it far apart. Whereas we were the opposite. Wow. We we ended in very different. We started in very different places, and we've ended, as she says, as yeah, best friends. Listen, this is yeah. for both of you guys. This this question is for both of you. We see that so much of the international community they turned a blind eye to what was happening in Aleppo and really Syria as a whole, especially once Russian the Russians began backing the Assad regime. 
Nothing seemed to have been done to help the situation then or maybe even since. So I ask you, what is your hope with this film now? What, if any, kind of change are you hoping to affect? Actually, the first thing is the awareness that people can see the story from an eye who uh, was inside the city. It's not about what you've seen in the news or what you've seen from a journalist who came for a while and then he left. It's like really real life where there and these people who were in the film, uh, like in Can Hamza or like Sama or the other family, Salam Afra and the kids and the people inside the hospital. It's just a, like a true life was going on, which is at any moment could be like end. So the first thing about like these people are not tourists and we are not tourists. We are just human beings wants our life to be better. Yeah. And this is what the first message from the film to make this awareness about who are Syrians and what, are, what, what they tried to do before they became like a refugee or uh, uh, like inspire around the world. And uh, maybe the second thing could be like, the unfortunately this bad message about, it's now three years later and the same scenario still happening in another place in Syria. That's right. And people are still suffering and the hospital is still being bombed. And this is actually one of the, uh, our impact campaign, which we're trying to do now is about uh, like the message of stop bombing hospitals and make the doctors and the medical staff inside Syria more known around the world and like to pull these red lines again about this hospital shouldn't be like bombed, these children shouldn't be bombed, whatever their side was. And I don't know, Ed, if you want to add something. Yeah, I mean... I just feel that, you know, this film in a way is like an empathy machine. We we often say it's almost like a VR experience because of the way the world shot and the way it's constructed. You you go inside her head, you're seeing through her eyes, you know, you look down and those are her feet and her hand reaches out sometimes into the frame. And so I really hope that audiences, as she says, will they have an opportunity to live in Aleppo, to meet Syrians, to see who Syrians are, you know, that they are not some alien people, but they're actually very similar to us. You know, they have the same sense of humor as us. It's only the language barrier that distinguishes us and they have the same dreams as we do. And I really hope that people take away just what what we've allowed to happen to to, you know, people who are just like us, that we've allowed them in a simple quest for dignity and freedom, we've allowed them to be subjected to the most fearsome bombardment that any civilian population has suffered since the Second World War. And just to reflect on that and to realize that, you know, we we now live in a world where these atrocities are happening and we can't just let it pass on our watch, you know? And what we do about it is a very complicated question, you know, and I'm not a politician right, right, by any right, means. Right. But I just hope that we sort of find a bit of steel back in our in our spines to just say no we are not going to allow you know our fellow human beings to to be subjected to these kind of atrocities anymore and that may be a bit of a, a grand dream but but that's why i hope people take away from it wad what does it feel like to be winning major awards for this film is that a strange experience to be doing so you know amidst all that has happened in your life and so many other syrian lives to be winning awards for the film it's like this, yeah, but it's more about uh, give you the feeling that people still care about others yeah. and people around the world who are like creative people are really care about this suffering and they still like 
consider that these things is really important and it's really make a difference and make a change. If that's if I want just like you know to take the positive side of this, but at the same time too, you feel that it's nothing really changed on the ground, and this is what we hope like from making this documentary that we can really reach out more what we what people usually see. Uh, and uh, I've got the same situation in 2017 actually about uh, the news awards uh, on my work uh, with Inside Alexa. Mm. And I felt just now we are, it's I, I really like not feeling anything anything sometimes when I've got an award. Uh, it's more about you know I feel that this life which is I am in now it's not real while wow. I'm still living in Aleppo and in the sense of the amazing life that I was in when I was inside. Mm -hmm. And and I, I almost feel strange myself asking this because I'm sure you get asked this a lot. But as a doc filmmaker, I'm curious. You know, and I, I realize you're very, very early in, in the sort of film festival and distribution process. But as a filmmaker, uh, Wad, are you already thinking of future projects or are you just trying to live and kind of stay in the now right now? Actually, this is a surprise. I was just writing something today <laughs> and I wanted you, Ed, to be involved tomorrow. So I, I will surprise you tomorrow. But yeah, there is something really, really close. Yeah. Great, great. <laughs> Fantastic. Wow, that is news. <laughs> there you go, Ed. We're breaking news on the documentary. God, she doesn't tell me anything anymore. Fantastic. Thanks, Chris. It's well, only because you're here. Video, she first video tomorrow will be when I will tell you. <laughs> the idea, and I, I'm sure you will be excited. Wow, I'm already excited, my friend. Thank you. God, I was with her all week, you know. I just, like, literally, this is the first morning I haven't seen her. Yeah, And now yeah. she has news for me. God almighty. <laughs> well, you two have been so kind of in the mix, you know, touring around with the film and going to festivals from, you know, this continent to the next. It's uh, it's under understandable yeah. how, how, how this anything could get yeah. missed, quite frankly. I've... I forgive you, Ed. Don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I know that uh, I know that you have uh, some some visa matters that you're dealing with at the moment, Wad. So I don't want to take up any more of your time, but I do want to thank you from the bottom of my heart of not only uh, sharing this film, but for the both of you coming together and creating something massively, massively important, um, not only on the doc filmmaking stage, but hopefully um, greater in a more global and international sense. I certainly hope something. Um, uh, continues to positively happen from, from this film. Uh, I want to thank the both of you. Thanks, Chris. Edward or Wad, do you have any parting comments before I let you go? Thank you very much, really. Thanks for this nice conversation and sorry for being late and for all this <laughs> it's rush. Right. Hey, hey, Wad, do you have any, do you have any final comments uh, that you might be able to direct to, um, to maybe first or second time doc filmmakers, any kind of inspiration that you might be able to impart? Actually, the first and most important things for me, which is, I really like catch it until now, it's just to fill the story. To... Oh no, we may have lost her. Oh, crucial moment. <laughs> <laughs> that beautiful bit of tip bit is lost forever. I know. <laughs> it's beautiful. <laughs> Um, I'll, maybe I'll ask you, Edward, and then if Wad can jump back on, we'll get, yeah. we'll get a last bit. Edward, as we as we finish up here in the Documentary Life uh, podcast, I wonder if you might have any sort of words of wisdom that you can impart to us. You know, I think it's actually, 
I think I think it's what Wad was about to say. Actually, yeah. I, I really share the same idea, and it goes back to what we were saying about the emotional distance and all of that. I think yeah. you know this is this golden age for documentary at the moment, where people are engaging with our form in in a new way, and we're reaching new audiences. and And I think with that comes incredible power to to make a difference in the world. You know, make a difference in awareness, perception. Um, and I would just really encourage doc filmmakers to seek out the stories that they care hello. about. They care about most passionately. Oh, hello. Welcome back. Okay. Uh, maybe Edward, can you just, can you finish that, that thought for yeah, us? Yeah, just, just to finish the thought that like, you know, I think what's, what makes a great documentary uh, for me is when a filmmaker truly connects with something, you know, in their soul and the connects their soul to their subject. And I would just really encourage my fellow doc makers, especially for the first and second ones, to just seek out those subjects and to know what they want to say. You know, like don't just make, don't just make a film because it's cool. You know, make a film because you have something to say and you have some insight um, that you personally connect with. That and and that is what will come through in your film. And Wad, if you're back with us, do you ha can you finish maybe your thought that you're presenting just before you left? Uh, yeah, I. Maybe not. <laughs> Maybe not. You know, the beauty, kind of the beauty of this conversation, I mean, I'll, I'll tighten up the ums and ahs and such, but I, I think I kind of want to leave a lot of it as is. It's it's very appropriate. If You know, once 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 everyone has seen Forsama, the, the sort of erratic nature and, and, and just like all over the place, but very, very passionate, just kind of makes its way through and the love makes its way through. It's, this is a perfect representation. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is how a lot of the film was made with Wad shouting at me down a call and me going like what <laughs> and uh it's uh, fantastic well, uh, edward yeah, yeah. and and wad thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show i'm i'm excited to get this out there and uh best of luck in the future i can't wait to see how Forsama does and uh you know once you're holding up that academy award uh make sure that uh, we can get another <laughs> oh word no you. you just jinxed yeah right again. right <laughs> yeah, we, it's all on you now my friend <laughs> that's right great <laughs> thank you so much i, I really anyway. appreciate it edward all right, Chris, thanks for the opportunity. Don't forget, if you're interested in our free eight-part course, the Independent Doc Filmmaker's Essential Checklist course, go to thedocumentarylife.com slash courses. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you in two weeks' time, Doc Lifer. Doc Lifer.